0: Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm Nicholas Ormer with my esteemed co-host here, Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel.
1: Nicholas is talking nonsense. It's the morning, which is why there was that awkward pause.
0: Well, I said good day because I don't know what time they're listening to this podcast, right? Right. So, you know, it could be at 2 o'clock in the morning.
1: Could be at 6 o'clock in the
0: morning. We don't know.
1: We don't know. But what we do know and what we should fully disclose at the start of this is that it's uh, Christmas uh, morning here in the IRS offices. Christmas party day. And mm-hmm. so we've popped a couple of Grolsch's. Yep. Uh, best uh, Dutch beer that you can get here with a, with that bottle top that flips
0: open. And uh, cheers, Nick. Cheers. And um, I, I, my one of my favorite political writers in the U.S., Jonah Goldberg, he always says that you can't say you've been drinking all day if you don't start in the morning.
1: Yep. classic a gold American tradition. And I think part <laughs> of the idea is that uh, today's a nice day to get wrecked. Yes. Uh, we're going to go have a braai at one of our colleagues' places, Duval. Yes. Uh, he has hosted some of the greatest sort of fringe English and Afrikaner rock bands. At his place, he's got a big back garden with lots of chickens and rabbits and from marijuana plants and uh, braai stands and all kinds of things. And uh, so we're gonna have a we're gonna have a Christmas uh, braai and hand out presents to each other. We've got a Secret Santa vibe going and. Uh, uh,
0: we won't really get wrecked. Wrecked is R-E-K-T, which is a thing that the the youth of a few years ago used. It's it's a misspelling of the word wrecked, as yeah. in shipwrecked. Yeah. Um, and basically, it means destroyed. Yeah. And you know, this all being said, can we be more or
1: less playful. And yeah. so we're going we're going to get playfully wrecked. But we thought that we'd look back on 2019 and yes. see the things that have been more or less playfully. wrecked.
0: Wrecked. <laughs> yes. So uh, we have a whole list, and the challenge today is to not get caught on any of them, as we have a tendency to do.
1: Yeah. We, um, last week, so that you know, we were supposed to have four topics, and we covered exactly three quarters
0: of one topic. Three quarters of one topic, and it was a long, crazy, rambling discussion as well. As I'm sure you know, those of you who listened to us and suffered through that. So thank you very much for suffering through that. Yeah. Um, but we, we, we promised to make it up to you this time. Less political theory, more facts on the ground. More facts on the ground. So the first thing that got wrecked. Um, was Hong Kong or China, depending on how you look at it. Wrecked. Because uh, Hong Kong, the people of it, have been very upset with their extradition bill. Um, But their protest that the mainland introduced, and this would have allowed the mainland uh, of China to basically take people um, out of political dissidence. Yeah, uh, it would have
1: turned the political system, the criminal justice system of Hong Kong into an an outsourced branch of China's mainland criminal justice system. And people who are serious about looking at the invisible strands that weave through a society and bind it together under a thing sometimes called the rule of law, when it's really rules that are dictating the game, uh, or sometimes it's called arbitrary power when it's really a uh, kind of, uh, you know, big man boss who gets to decide who goes into tricky and who gets to run around free. Yep. And uh, the Hong Konglies were not super stoked on having their criminal justice system become uh, an outsourced branch of the Chinese government.
0: And the, that extradition bill has been withdrawn. But the problem, of course, is that now uh, there is far more at stake. Yeah. Uh, the, a lot of the protest has turned into a protest against police brutality. Yeah. Um, and there's ongoing clashes between protesters, which are still quite large, um, the number of protesters, and the Hong Kong police, who have gone from a generally well-respected institution to one that is relatively unpopular. And this has culminated recently in the defeat in the local government elections in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is unique in China that it's one of the few places that actually holds elections. Um, the pro-government, the pro-Beijing candidates, who... Smashed. Yeah. Uh, It's like a 60-point swing. eh? They had Uh, like uh, a 60% uh, majority,
1: uh, 7% majority. In in terms of seats,
0: in terms of actual votes, it wasn't as dramatic. Yeah. Um, But it was still pretty big. And that was on the back of very high turnout. Yeah. Um, And this is a bit of a stumbling block for the Chinese because uh, if you looked at the sort of Chinese state propaganda coming out, they very genuinely expected to win yeah convincingly they'd set the hong kong protesters up they call them rioters they'd and there were plenty of protesters that were violent yeah. that were silly that were making
1: uh, bizarre demands but um, there was obviously enough real i mean i think there were genuine acts. enough real mm. real concerns um that that reasonable people might share that uh, the efforts to discredit the, the the whole movement on the basis of
0: it's most radical fringes didn't really yeah. work out, and a seventy three percent turnout in an election, which is, I believe, uh, approximately where the turnout mm. was, um, it's is huge. Very, it's very high for a local government election, especially. Yeah. yeah. So that is quite quite spectacular.
1: And I want to tell a quick story about that. So, uh, you, I've lived a year in Russia plus, and one of the interesting things that comes out of that is knowing various people who, you know. From a South African point of view, it looks like either you were for communism or against it. But when you're inside Russia, you can be like, no, we were for Leninism, or no, we were for Stalinism, or we really thought Gorbachev had it right, we thought Khrushchev had it right. Brezhnev wasn't so bad, yeah. 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 So one of the things that Stalinists often have against Leninists, but then that people who, who like the communists that came after Stalin sort of also hold against Stalin a little bit, but really it goes against Lenin, is the idea that the reason that the Soviet Union collapsed was because it was made that way in the first place. Uh, And the metaphor that they use is the chocolate bar, the Cadbury's chocolate bar, the Nestle chocolate bar. It's got this sort of terrible, unctuous, sweet, (laughs) weak, decadent (laughs) flavor to it. And the whole idea is that a chocolate bar that you buy in the store is made to be broken up into pieces very easily. Mm. They're, those, they're those divots, those, those lines, seams, yes, those yeah. seams carved into it. So it's very easy to break it off piece by piece. And by having all the little socialist republics
0: inside the USSR. And
1: and that was a decision that came at a point in the 20s, they were like, mm. okay, how are we going to set this up? Are we going to have a federation Are we going to have it all really centralized under Moscow? And he's like, no, we're going to have a federal kind of idea of a system and let the mm. Ukrainians have their thing and let the... Poles have their thing, and oh, Poles weren't involved yet. But let's those, those Balkans, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they, uh, so they set it up so that you could break it off chunk by chunk. And as soon as it lo- the chunk started breaking off, it looked like they would break off. The whole thing just ended up collapsing.
0: Because, mm-hmm. of course, the borders that were drawn in the Soviet period are still the borders of the countries around Russia.
1: Those so seams so. are that that's how the chocolate broke. Yeah. And so China's got a chocolate tea problem too, in that Hong Kong is like a little break offable piece, mm. Macau is a little break offable piece. Mm. Tibet is a a, is a little breakoffable piece, a very big breakoffable piece, but not with a lot of people. Yeah. And the Uyghurstan yeah. is kind of a breakoffable um, piece,
0: and it, to a certain extent, uh, Mongolia um, as well.
1: Once you start going, mm. the pieces really start. So China's, uh, Beijing's got this very real, real politic concern yeah. that any more concessions that they make to the Hong Kong uh, show how how thin these seams are and how uh, how a little bit of pull and you can you can really yeah. break a piece off and then that'll excite people around the other parts of it and and I think Beijing I my theory is that Beijing would sort of gladly let Hong Kong go if it meant they could keep using it as a financial hub to for mm. Chinese elites to do business but and so on if it was if they had like some metaphysical guarantee that none of the other pieces are going to break off. Yeah, and but but also, but I there's, that's, that's just not going to happen.
0: There is also the fear that uh, as what's happened to Russia with Ukraine, where Ukraine wants to go west, yeah, um, you know the 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 the, the Chinese communists, the Chai Koms would be very upset and uh, think that maybe. Hong Kong might suddenly allow US aircraft carriers to park there if it was independent, <laughs> which would freak them out very much. It's bad enough that American aircraft carriers can already do it in Taiwan. Yep. Which, uh, depending on who you ask, is China or not China? Yeah, yeah.
1: So that's a piece. that That's the like the uh, case in yeah. point piece of, like, according to some people, it's
0: already been broken off and eaten up by the West. Yes. Um, and, of course, the other thing that's really been smashed as part of this is China's soft power image. They've been doing a lot of work to build it up. Um, yeah. Belt and uh, Road Initiative, trillion exactly. dollars of commitments. And um, but simultaneously, two things have happened. One is the Hong Kong protests, and the other one is uh, the Uyghurs. Yeah, Uyghurs, uh, their western province, where they have these big camps, which, uh, according to all the sort of reporting and information coming out about them, are quite horrifying things. Quite harsh. Um, Nick thinks they're like the Gulag. I say until you've killed 10 million people, you're not like the Gulag. But they certainly aren't nice. We don't know the numbers. Um, And the the documents from the Chinese Communist Party that the New York Times released uh, show the Communist Party officials saying, I think the direct quote is, show them no mercy. Yeah, prima facie, it it really doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. We will see. Unfortunately, there's very little the world appears to be able to do to stop such things um, beyond provoking some conflict that would be way more devastating. Yeah. Um, so we have to see with how this develops yeah uh, hopefully uh, the, it's, there is a happy resolution as if they can if such a thing is possible next yes, so uh, Elon Musk um, Elon, Elon Musk's, Musk's truck got wrecked Yes, so he developed this really bizarre looking truck, which, according to the official line, was dis- based off of designs from Blade Runner. Uh, it's this very sort of sleek, weird, modern-looking thing. It looks, looks like a little, little
1: bit like a triangle, like a bit like on a top triangle. of a box. I th- I find the design attractive. Part of the reason that it is designed that way is because it's made out of cold rolled steel. Whoever knows mm. what that means? Basically, it's the same material they use to build rockets that they send into space and that yep. can land on their own tails very impressively. And because it's such a hard, amazing metal, you can't you can't press it into fancy shapes the ways that uh, soft. Uh, Exteriors of most trucks are pressed, so it's got to be very angular. And they sort of, I mean, the way they were talking about what's special
0: about it is that it's an electric car, yeah, and it's supposed to be more powerful basically than any other pickup truck on the market, yeah. Excepting one of the things that's tricky about it is I don't understand how it's a pickup truck because it doesn't have an obviously open load bin at the back, it does. It's a triangle. It looks close to me. No, it's just it's just sleek. It's it's got a thing, and it's got even a triangle like tailgate. Thing yeah, that comes down. it's a it's a it's a weird it's closed cabin thing. It's it's very weird. I think it looks super cool. It was it, this is this is uh, one of the wonderful things about eccentric, insane, rich people. Yeah, um, billionaires. So they, I think billionaires so. is that they develop fascinating things. Yeah, and Elon Musk is continuing that noble tradition of eccentric lunatic. Yeah, um, with his with his space rockets and his weird electric cars. I mean, I don't know whether I'd buy one but the idea that there's cool futuristic cars driving around like this is... Out there. Yeah,
1: dude, if I saw one of those rolling through the streets of Hillbrow, I would start playing Galagata. I'd be feeling very cool. Just to see it.
0: If I was driving in it, I would feel so awesome. That's a very early 2000s kind of cool, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Elon Musk, I feel his sense of cool comes from... Around the time TKZ and Mendoza and company
0: were. Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, the reason it got wrecked, though, was at their demonstration of the car. Um, <laughs> he, oh, God, he, it's terrible. He decided that, you know, they it's supposed to have these, like, completely shutterproof windows. Um, and they were showing it off, you know. So they firstly had guys hit the thing with hammers, and it didn't make a dent. It was, like, brilliant. And then he was like, let's throw a big metal ball at the window and show you how the window is completely impervious to damage. And he did it, and the window smashed
1: and then he's like, okay, maybe let's throw it at the other window. And then he threw it at that one, softer, and that one smashed too. Yeah, so <clears throat>
0: it had some bugs. And then he had
1: to do the rest of the p- presentation in front of that. By the way, I don't know if you've seen his explanation for why it smashed. Oh, yeah? So uh, he said that it's w- what happened is when they did the sledgehammer thing against the door, that sledgehammering the door underneath the window didn't crack the window but it it uh fissured the connection between the window at the bottom underneath where you can't see and the sort of plane that's holding the window up and so as soon as that fissured that's what disrupts the crystal lattice of the metal
0: this is why we have dress rehearsals people
1: and then they threw the thing (laughs) and then it and then and then you get the shadow so that's I mean,
0: whatever it is, what it is. Yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I'm not always that. I don't always trust everything that Elon Musk says. He has a, he has a lot of excuses for things. Um, but let's move on. Yeah. To anyway, s- so his thing got wrecked. Yes. So something delicious happened this year, which is that rheumophoria, which we warned about, wrecked. I think that it's fairly safe to say that the the the, uh, the or that sort of delusion about how. Ramaphosa was going to be this great, heroic reformer who was going to lead the ANC into a new century of a wonderful economic growth and social harmony and all these
1: great thousand things. thousand flowers would be allowed to bloom. Exactly. Uh, not so much. Yeah, so um, this is it feels very personal to me, in a way. I started my political career in journalism. Uh, sorry, my career in political journalism in 2017, sort of on the eve of the Nasrec election. I'd been an art critic till then, trying very hard to sort of... Uh, look at the beautiful stuff that we have in this country and that beautif- beauty is often horrific and sometimes it's surprise- It's o- almost always surprising if it's real beauty, dangerous, sometimes very pleasing. And uh, that came to be very hard for me. And then I found some interesting data about the fact that Ramaphosa was basically six times more popular than, of course, Zanadlamini Zuma amongst the ANC's voting, amongst people who had voted for the ANC before. And so it seemed crazy that they were going into the Nazarick election where these 5,000 delegates supposedly representing the ANC's base uh, were half and half split between him
0: and NDZ. And, of, and of course, the, um, the delicious thing about the collapse of Ramaphoria is just all the ways that it has, especially on the economic front.
1: Hold on, let me finish my story. <laughs> the, this is to say that Ramaphoria, or the hope that Ramaphosa would be a genuine reformer, was something, before it was believed by the press the press started believing it after he was elected at Nasrec. Before he was elected at Nasrec, the press was sort of quite skeptical about him and very willing to give NDZ a bit of a chance. Yeah, and be the like, sorry that like, she was
0: the, the true face in a sense of rural South Africa yeah, or something like that.
1: exactly. So the, the, they were confused. The first people to have Ramaphoria were ordinary ANC voters. And what was most interesting about the data that I saw, survey data, 5,000 respondents all visited twice. The biggest sort of single political survey in the new South Africa, done uh, commissioned by ENCA, was that his preference for Ramaphosa was even stronger amongst poor, less educated, unemployed black people than it was amongst the middle class of black and white alike. Do you hear that sound? So that's a sound of narratives collapsing. Yeah. So he really was beloved in the heartland. He, he was very fond um, in the urban centers. He was the most popular guy across race, class, gender, uh, every kind of religion, all the divides that you can think of. And uh, I think a big part of that was the same survey showed that people really wanted more business-friendly problem, uh, policies. One of the things they said is, do you want radical economic transformation? Do you want to continue with the status quo? Or do you want more business friendly stuff. And I think a majority said more business friendly. If you add in status quo and uh, more business friendly, that was like 85, nearly 90%. People who wanted radical economic transformation, which would most easily be exemplified by expropriation without compensation, were a tiny little portion at the top. Yeah. And so it looked like Ramaposa really had all the makings of a real revolution because he had all the political capital, not just to be popular as an individual, not just to go after corruption, but also to come and deregulate, uh, make it easier for businesses to get going, make, cut the red tape, the cut the kind choices, of B, fight the anti-meritocracy, fight the unions, all that kind of stuff. And instead of doing that, Instead of listening to the people, it seems to me that what he did is listen to the media, which in 2018 got going with Ramaphoria and carried on pushing it through 2019. And that Ramaphoria wasn't about policy. It was just about this weird idea of patriotism, where to love the beloved leader and to hope is patriotic. Mm -hmm. It's a very weird thing that hope is patriotic. There's not a lot of countries of whom that's true. Uh, But it's certainly true of us. (laughs) And that hope has started to erode. And there's lots of ways that we see it in terms of uh, major captains of industry, uh, foreign attaches, uh, who all last year when we were saying, guys, look, we would love just as much, if not more than you would for him to be the reformer that you believe him to be. Um, but we're not seeing the evidence that we that we were hoping for, and we've already laid down dashboard markers for you to look at to see if he's if he's really going for it. Um, and so you, you've got to you've got to, We think you need to apply more pressure, and then he'll do it um, because maybe his heart's in the right place. Um, that's that's a hard thing to ever get a read on on anyone, and he's particularly enigmatic. Yeah. And uh, but those dashboard markers are not coming up, and people would say to us repeatedly, you know, we think you're just being a bit sour, a bit negative uh Yuck. you know things are going to work on, out give
0: him a chance he's playing the long game
1: yeah and this year uh especially in the last couple of months we've been hearing mm-hmm. a lot of we wish we'd listened to you sooner yeah and, uh, coming
0: from very serious and important public people and uh and there's so, there's so yeah. many ways which is visible the sort of the debt levels all those bad ideas that were kicked around during the zuma era being implemented things like NHI, things yeah. like uh, uh ewc my um, my
1: pet one is the min- national minimum wage, which had been, was the core competency developing that policy was the core competency under the deputy president, then Silo Ramaphosa. And we've now instituted a national minimum wage that's equal to the median wage, which is something that no country in the world has ever tried. Most countries that get it right have a minimum wage that's half the median wage. So if our minimum wage was 1250 rand a month, uh, which is what the government pays a lot of its workers, that would be one thing. Uh, but instead we've got this crazy thing where you've got uh, 55% youth unemployment, but kids and a high sc- a school system where five and a hundred people who enter the public school come out with a matric pass in mathematics. And yet, if you don't have a matric pass, you know, if you're not one of the very lucky few who makes it into university, your only real chance of getting a job is going to be to go work for one and a half, two thousand rand a month and live on the bones of your ass until you manage to upskill and, and get your way into a better situation. If you and manage. And people can't even mm. get that in the door
0: yeah yeah um and it's it's yeah it's really not looking good out there uh but we'll see this there's a there's a long way to go um but i think i think we can say that the the, the, the stupid optimism, side of it the stupid yeah. side of optimism has been wrecked the stupid side of optimism has been wrecked there may be a happy ending to the story but we first got to go down a lot more bumps in the road yeah yeah be before we can potholes
1: in the road and i just want to add to that yoval's Streets. Yovel is a suburb just next to the center of Johannesburg. First suburb in which black people and white people were basically living together. Uh, it's, its streets got wrecked. Uh, <laughs> I counted about 60 holes that had been dug by the municipality to completely redo the water system underneath. Uh, and some of it's been fixed.
0: <clears throat> and some of it is not. Well, hopefully the new mayor of Johannesburg will sort that out. Uh, whoever that's going to be. Joburg mayoralship got wrecked. Yes, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's not on our list, but uh, we don't know how that story ends yet. We so don't, we yeah. We can't really say what's going to happen. No. Um, all right, so I've written here, Nork Peace Gets Wrecked, and by Nork I mean North Korea. So Trump did this whole song and dance where he starts off talking to North Korea with the fire and fury, um, and he says we're going to destroy you, wipe you out if you keep threatening us, and you're so out of control the story has then it changed all of a sudden when Donald Trump decided to meet with Kim Jong-un which apparently the North Koreans have been in favor of for a very long time but yeah. Donald Trump is the first American president to actually say yes to it. Um and they So they go from hating each other to loving each other and literally lying, yeah. writing love letters. Trump Trump has said that he's received lovely letters from Kim Jong-un mm-hmm. uh, who is the, the world the jailer of the uh, of the of millions of people in yeah. the world's largest open air prison camp. Yeah. which is North Korea. Um Anyway, there were some promising early signs that maybe there was a um, potential peace offering.
1: Yeah, there vows to stop nuclear m- to stop missile
0: testing to uh, balk the nuclear missile program. Um, but and and the US uh, Trump has even cancelled some of the military drills with South Korea, and this is also this is it's not just a US North Korea thing because the South Korean government currently is very. Uh, to say pro North Korean is a little bit perhaps of an exaggeration, but they are the left of of of, of South Korea, and yeah. they do have a v- strong affinity for 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 North Korea. They have a yeah. They a really want to rejoin. I, I heard someone once describe the the Korean War as not so much a war between nations as a war between right and left in Korea, mm-hmm. um, which just happened to have a geographic structure to it. Yeah. So anyway, um, there were some promising early signs but there were a lot of people who said things like well are the north koreans for real and are the americans being played here and and
1: against that there were a lot of trump's (laughs) like fans who were Mm -hmm. like give donald trump a nobel peace prize Right now. For
0: solving the greatest, longest-running conflict in human history. You know, not exactly, but that was the kind of sentiment. Um, but there were some early warning signs. One of the secretaries of state went to uh, North Korea to negotiate some of the more finer details of any kind of agreement. Mm. And the North Koreans got him to pay for the medical costs of an American who the North Koreans had taken prisoner and beaten to death in one of their prisons. And they got the Americans to pay for the medical costs of, of, of looking Wiping after Wiping the blood off the floor. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that was a bad early sign. The North Koreans kept stonewalling, didn't make many concess- concessions, and as a result, the Americans made very few concessions. There was no real lifting of sanctions. Rex Tillerson was still kind of running yeah. this of the show. Yeah. And he was very irritated with 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 the, the eat, yeah. Yes. And it seems now the final nail has been put in this coffin because uh, the North Koreans, I think what two three days ago launched two missiles from a new missile system yeah. uh, doing another test into the eastern sea yeah.
1: so sadly peace there
0: wrecked wrecked um, and we'll see how that develops it looks like it's just going to stay the status quo for a while Yeah, North Korea is a very mysterious place because yeah. it's very closed so we don't really know what's going on there very
1: difficult I just want to add uh, I think pr- maybe the best movie I've seen this year is called Parasite it was made in South Korea and it's kind of just a little family drama but it touches on some very deep universal human condition things and there's also a very obvious kind of parable being told about the North-South Korea relationship and it's still going in Cinema Niveau, in
0: Rosebank and uh, around the country wherever there are sort of art cinemas and wherever there's the internet, you can always hack it offline. Maybe I should actually watch it. I mean, I, I'm very lazy about watching good pieces of, of literature. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just plugging it, dude. It's,
1: it's so easy. It's so It sort of starts out really funny and then... It becomes dark in a way mm. that I think it's hard to become dark unless
0: you live with a nuclear arsenal pointed at your head. Yes, there's quite a lot of good cinema out there actually right now from Asia in yeah. particular. So I a Japanese film about, um, I saw someone recommending it on the internet, about people who are making a film about zombies, but there's also zombies for real outside. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, I haven't watched, but it, looked, it looked pretty good from That's the trailer. Not very meta. Um, all right, so we're going we're gonna to come back to that one because I think it requires a little bit more mulling about them. The Great Cathedral, built in, I think, the 900s. Notre Dame in Paris. Notre Dame. Got wrecked this year. Yeah. When it caught fire for, I don't think they know the reasons, I think they speculated it was what a welding tool yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it was being redone, restored, because it's a very old building caught fire the roof burned off but the inside seems to be mostly intact yeah, the stained glass the massive stained glass windows survived yes fantastically which is, which is very good yeah um, it means that uh, they'll probably be able to repair it in not too long yeah um, but it, it was still a horrifying sight to see this wonderful artistic ancient building You know, yeah. more than a thousand years old up in flames yeah. and it's a real symbol of Paris and France yeah um also, subject to all sorts of conspiracy theories about it being burned down on purpose by, you know, sort of Islamic extremists or something like yeah. that. Yeah, which never came, which never went anywhere. There seems yeah. to be no real evidence of that. Yeah, um, but it was it was a great tragedy. So hopefully, no more special buildings will get wrecked next year. Yeah, no buildings are nice. It's nice. Buildings are nice, especially very old ones. Yeah. Um, so I'm one of my favorite is the Hagia Sophia, which is the very big uh, mosque slash church slash museum in Istanbul or Constantinople yeah um and it's uh, I hope that it remains as a museum there have been some moves by Erdogan. there's the, some suggestions that he might turn it back into a mosque yeah um but it has a it's, a it's a magnificent building it has a very long history so hopefully that survives it's also survived a lot of earthquakes and that part of the world is prone to them so I hope there's not another one <laughs> political and uh, geophysical yes yes or both um so hopefully we don't lose any more of those nice structures next year um Here's another fun one. The Mueller report got wrecked. Wrecked. So for those of you who don't quite remember, because it was 400 million news cycles in America ago, <laughs> it seems like... In a
1: galaxy far, far away.
0: On, on, on the edges of your mind, in the distant mists of your memory, uh, there was this idea that uh, there had been collusion between the Donald Trump's political campaign to be elected and... Uh, uh, the the, the and Russians Putin. and the Russians. They basically colluded together to steal the election from Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And Donald Trump kept saying nice things about Putin and he fired an FBI director for looking into this. And so. Congress and then hired Christopher Wray. Who did he fire again? Uh, James Comey. James Comey, yeah. And so. Tall. I think he went to Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> like like our esteemed colleague at Gabriel Krause right? yeah. went to Princeton University. Just, just don't forget that he went to Princeton University. <laughs> Wrecked. <laughs> Princeton will never get wrecked, I hope. Oh, well. Like is. the Hagia Sophia. Never. Let it live a thousand years. Ne- yeah, never is a very long time.
1: Um. <laughs> it does have bullet holes from... It was the capital of America during the Civil War. And uh, and so it had been shelled a little bit by the South.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Didn't get wrecked, though. It just got semi-wrecked. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, anyway, this Mueller report finally comes out. There's all the speculation. It's saying, oh, it's going to be devastating to Trump. It's going to absolutely destroy him. And it says that, basically, they couldn't find real evidence of collusion. He, There was an attempt, it seems, by the Trump uh, campaign to do some sort of very low-key collusion, but they didn't actually get it together because yeah. they weren't very competent, it yeah. turns out. They were dummies. And some of them, definitely some of them had made money. Before the campaign, yes, in super dodgy ways in super dodgy ways, and, they, and it got very complicated very quickly and but there was no there was no phone call between Putin and Donald Trump, where putin said uh, you know you've been nice to me you, listen i 'll be very, very nice to you exactly um, such a cartoonish clean cut thing didn 't come out. and as a result uh, the whole thing fell a bit flat. There was still some damaging stuff in there for Trump. But it turns out that he seems to uh, have uh, wanted to obstruct the investigation. Several times, he ordered his subordinates to go and fire Mueller, mm-hmm. which would have created a bit of a constitutional crisis because mm-hmm. this is exactly what led to Richard Nixon basically being chucked out he fired someone who was investigating him and then fired the deputy. and then fired the deputy when when they also ref, uh, refused to to t- toe to to the line to toe the line. Yeah. um. But his subordinates argued him out of it. They said, no, this is a terrible idea. And he never really pushed the matter. Yeah, uh, He just kind of seems to have been venting. Um, and so he didn't come out particularly well from the Mueller report, but he also didn't do anything particularly illegal.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that bugs me about this is that I really, yes, I'm not keen on corruption anywhere amongst anyone. And I'm very glad, like the Mueller report could have in, looked at through one eye. It's a great <laughs> victory. Because Miller's investigations really did lead to quite a few people being jailed, quite yeah. a few people being sort of knocked out of politics, political careers being ended. And that's a, that's such a good thing. Yeah. Good God, if we could have that here, wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice, wouldn't it? Quick, relatively quick and uh, with some effect. One of the problems is that, you know, I, I loved the New York Times when I lived in America for six years and I used to read it every day. And one of the things that broke my heart about that, most esteemed newspaper in the world until not so long ago is that a uh, couple of days before the election the little bar that it carried on its front page of who's going to win the election its prediction the percentage bar, percentage chance was yeah, yeah. uh it, it it was blue for clinton red for trump the blue was so big that there weren't enough pixels for there to be any red at all <laughs> that clinton on a 98% chance 2 3 to 4 days before the election then yeah. it came down to like 90 percent, So you could see a little bit of red. Yeah. And then they didn't really ever try to come to terms with how they'd managed to get it so wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: And instead seemed to jump right into the Russia Gate story, according to which the reason that anyone would have gotten it wrong was because Russia had interfered in yeah, the election. Yeah. And so you don't really... So, so
0: figuring out how so we got it
1: wrong means... Yeah, so we assuming from the start that the Mueller report is going to show up uh, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin having yeah. a very intimate relationship that results in Vladimir Putin using all of the tentacles of the Russian octopus to inveigle its way into yeah. the American so, body so, politics.
0: So, so the story is basically that a lot of these media institutions basically said, no, no, we're not wrong. The election was wrong.
1: Yes. That's one um, point. Which uh,
0: turns out to not really be the case.
1: Yeah. And then today or this week, The New Yorker, which I really rate as, you know, generally a fantastic. Uh, magazine hmm. uh, with beautiful long-form journalism and in that's yeah, famous kind of, for that it's
0: yeah some really good stuff in there
1: and they publish some of the best like novelists and short story writers and Hannah Arendt used to uh, submit really brave journalism there way back in the day sort of like nice historic little notes anyway uh they have been one of the very few major publications to go even a step further and say Steele Christopher Steele the guy who was hired by, by the, Fusion GPS, which was being paid by the Clinton Foundation. Yes, to, for, to investigate
0: claims about uh, Trump's activities in Russia. And they
1: produced the idea that there was this P-tape
0: and that that was being used to blackmail uh, Trump. Uh, there was a very embarrassing, weird sexual thing going on that was uh, being used to... So, this Which so which, as it says in the Steele dossier, um, he himself, Christopher Steele, is like, Yeah, I'm not sure about this one. I ain't too sure about this.
1: But so the thing <laughs> is, like, most people have been like, Okay, so this is a bit of a problem. But the New Yorker's been sort of running a very sympathetic line and being like, Steele, it's too easy to put Steele down. Because some of the things he did say were true. Yeah. But most not true. And then there's this thing about like if a spy is getting half the things right, does that mean he's a really good spy because it's hard to get anything right? Or does that mean he's a rubbish spy because he's being given chicken yeah. feed well, in order to uh, g- uh, get some credibility in order that bigger lies can be fed yeah, his way think, or he can feed I bigger lies? I think at lies. the
0: end of the story, at the end of the day, that dossier was really just a collection of rumors. Right. Uh, some of which were true. Some, some of some which literally came out crazy. of a bar in like uh, yeah. Copenhagen. Anyway. One of the,
1: here's here's what concerned me about this, in this week's edition of The New Yorker, um, their their most recent defense of it. Because I think, yeah, um, is that they say, here's a question you have to ask yourself. Was Christopher Steele a useful idiot? Were some of those rumors deliberately planted by the Russians to cause chaos for the purpose of delegitimizing the Clinton campaign? Mm. by getting a Clinton-hired dude and a Clinton-hired firm to say crazy things about Trump, to try and humiliate him, so that if Trump were to lose, he could then complain and say this election was rigged because uh, the Russians and the Clintons and all kinds of people have it out for me, and so they spread vicious lies about me, and that's what cost
0: me the election. And it does seem clear, just before we move completely up the model thing, that... uh The Russians really were trying to mess around. No, uh, so this uh, is the the question that the New Yorker asks and the way
1: that it answers by asking Christopher Steele himself. And he Mm. says there is no reason that the Russians had to want to uh, do anything to hurt Trump. They only wanted Trump to win. They they had no interest in anything else. Mm. And this is just demonstrably crazy. Russian bots have been shown... To have been running Facebook campaigns for Black Lives Matter yeah. and against Black Lives Matter, they, for queer movements and against queer movements, they, they're not, for the ultra left position and for the ultra right positions. Mm. The whole point of trying to they not they weren't as interested. Look. As, as much as the New York Times is silly for thinking that Trump had a 0% chance of winning, mm. even the smartest people like Nay Silver thought that he was less likely to win yeah. than not. It was and, less likely to and f- it flip. it turns out, I mean, coin flip. so it was much. So if you're a Russian uh, bot or whatever, agent and you want to meddle in the election, you can't just hope to try and make Trump win. One of the things you've got to try and hope to do is make sure that if Hillary Clinton wins, she wins in the most hamstringing, nasty way possible. Which would have And been that a would be exactly the kind of thing that would motivate you then to feed, uh, steal chicken feed. And instead of even acknowledging the possibility, he categorically denounces it. Yeah. And the New Yorker supports him in that categorical denouncement. And I think it's just, it's just irresponsible for them not to recognize that... Something that is much more threatening to American democracy than any particular candidate winning is for the whole environment to become so suspicious and cynical and toxic, and toxic mm. that it doesn't really matter who's winning what, what, because they're going to be hamstrung from beginning to end by impeachment procedures, by uh, vicious complete disallowance of the benefit of the doubt and by knee, political kneecapping start to finish.
0: I think what the Russians really wanted was an electoral college tie. So this is a theoretically possible position in the American... This is uh, not what the Russians really wanted. But you should tell people what an electoral college tie is. No, come on. This this would have been great for them. I mean, it would
1: have been a dream come true for certain mad people, including Nicholas Lorimer. (laughs) So tell us more.
0: (laughs) So basically what happens is there's a set of circumstances where... So normally you need 270 votes in the electoral college uh, system in the US to win a presidential election. But it is possible for both sides to get 269 At which point the election is removed completely from the Electoral College and the House of Representatives chooses the president and the uh, Senate chooses the vice president which means that you can end up with a candidate from one party being the president and another being the vice president. It's never happened before, and it would create serious problems because the losing side who wasn't picked would say that this was unfair. The the Democrats, for example, in 2016, if they had lost this way, if Trump had become president because the Republicans had voted him in the House, would have said something along the lines of, uh, oh, it's just because the Republicans gerrymandered all the districts, and so it wasn't a fair election, and it's all fake news and lies. But now
1: they have the House, so it's happening. In yeah. If the, it she would then. be on the
0: other foot and exactly. it would be the Republicans saying and it would be it, w- it would be a disaster it, Twitter would be amazing on the day it happened yeah because there would be so much fighting
1: American democracy would be
0: wrecked would be wrecked <laughs> yes which is why I think the Russians would kind of like that if Putin was sitting there thinking oh yes if there's a tie it's going to be the best thing ever Um, and, and this I don't know I don't know that he wants America ready to fall apart no he doesn't want it, but it wouldn't fall apart though We would just have a it would be a bit distracted for a bit As it has been. It would be less interested in helping Ukraine on on its eastern border than it
1: currently is. I don't know. One of the things that can happen with America is that if it gets fractious enough, it might find uh, similar to 2001. In 2000, when Bush was elected, he had the biggest uh, not-my-president protests in the history of America up till that point. Up until Trump. It was, a, it was a very nasty election, and there was this constitutional crisis because of the vote counts in Florida. Mm. It was, it was America. And it was, was
0: also the 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 uh, the allegations that he had been, you know, drunk driving and that kind of thing when he was younger, just before he all went... all kinds yeah. of nasty stuff. It was, a, it was a hugely divisive
1: election. Yeah, and uh, then when Bush, Bush's kid uh, George did become president. He was playing golf. He took the most holiday days in the first year of his presidency because it seemed like he couldn't really do anything because he wasn't smart enough or because he didn't have the political capital because he'd gone through in the strange way. Most and then uh, merciless election. So and America was a house divided yeah. against itself until the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and that other plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. And then the country united around a common enemy, this sort of flight ninety-three. this idea of terrorism. Um and if you know if america if if i think if america were to go through a thing like that like an electoral college tie it would be even so much worse than the trump division mm. that uh Look, if there wasn't a war to be had, one would have to be invented. <laughs> and then Americans would get together around that. Well, they might finally invade Mexico. Around a common enemy.
0: <laughs> Again, <laughs> like did in the 1800s. <laughs> but, um, all right, well, let's move on to the Muller report. Well, I
1: would say just historically, it's, mm. it's really their, inv- their invasion of Cuba, where they drive out the Spaniards yeah, in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, that binds America together after the Civil War. Yeah, And ever since then, having a war against a common enemy has been the most effective way to bring Americans together.
0: But uh, crazy conspiracy theories aside,
1: or crazy crazy predictions, speculations yes. about, about yes. The, the, yes. the future. The Mueller
0: report got wrecked in the
1: sense that it didn't satisfy anyone. Yes. A lot of Democrats were like, ah, oh, he didn't go far enough. A lot of Republicans
0: were like, oh, he, there was mission creep. It was a little bit like the ending of Lost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about now some uh, some good news. Um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, got wrecked. Yeah, so he released a video
1: earlier in the year saying, uh, reports of my death have been hugely exaggerated. Here I am,
0: loud, proud, and uh, ready to kill all the infidel. Uh, Um, But apparently not. Well, not not anymore. No. And he ended up being chased down a tunnel, fleeing with his children, wearing a suicide vest by a dog. He then Mm. blew himself up. And his children, because that was just the sort of charming (laughs) chap he was. Um he had a very pretentious name uh, those of you who know might know something about Islamic history know that the very first successor of Muhammad, the first caliph was uh called Abu Bakr although that's only true according to the Sunni and according not the Shiites. to the Sunnis and not the Shiites yeah. yes but if, uh, Abu Bakr is a Sunni yeah um anyway so so this was a very pretentious name because his name basically translates as Abu Bakr from Baghdad yeah uh, which is not his birth name by the way actually it was his 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 yeah, his, his name who. that he went by in his political career. Yeah. Uh, he was responsible. Like for Lady Gaga. <laughs> yes. Just much worse. Just much worse. <laughs> I'm not trying to. <laughs> There's not a moral equivalent. No, either. that's not the point. Just uh, a name thing. And of course, we all know that uh, uh, his Islamic State was an incredibly brutal regime which took the most extreme versions of Sharia. Mm. It killed people. It promised, it recruited, carried out terrorist attacks in the West. Um, it killed many people in the Middle East and in the West. And it was a terrible, nasty, awful state that managed to get basically every power in the world to fight it. Iran, Russia, and America mm. uh, could all agree, at least on some level. Mm. I mean, there was some collaboration here and there between the Assad regime and mm, ISIS There was sometime. mess. But thankfully, ISIS has lost most of its territory, or all of it. Since I
1: was talking about the New York Times, my favorite uh, line from the New York Times in 2019 was when ISIS was uh, militarily taken out. Yes. Uh, there was a sort of bit of re- a review, uh, look back on its history, and they noted that at its largest geographic extent, ISIS's area, yes. the area of the land that it had command over, was about as large as the little-known northwest province of the Republic of South Africa. <laughs> And I think there's a moment of lucidity that sort of shone through Mm. uh, a lot of the ideological noise there because the northwest province is a very worrying place. It's kind of deserty. It has the most growth in uh, the most economic growth basically in the country. Because of the platinum group medals that it's mm. sitting on, it, there's a lot of new money there. There's a lot of social dislocation there. There is some of the most harsh, racial, de- divisive language, it's where the class EFF divisive EFF gets language. a lot of support, actually. It's really, it's a really far out place. And one of the, uh, it's not a place that I'd visited much before this year. Mm. And this year I spent uh, well, quite a few weeks there. Now, when you were researching the Kalini case, yeah? Kalini case, mm. Schweizer case. Um,. And uh, yeah, man, it's anyway. it's got problems. It's a really it's and if one thinks of South Africa falling apart, I think the Northwest Province is the kind of place where you know if you can if you can get uh, command of a mine, a lot of a lot of the way that sort of. Um, in Kuwait, proto states work in the Middle East is that you manage to get hold of a few oil fields, and that gives you the money yeah. generation to buy to arms, buy arms set up a that you network, need to yeah. protect the thing and then set up a patronage sector to try and grow the thing. And I think, you know, we, one of the reasons that it's important for South Africa to remain a politically coherent uh, rule of law democracy is that if we were to start falling apart, I think the Northwest province would, re- we would start remembering why some clever journalists of the New York mm. Times decided to draw that comparison in yes. terms of geographical extent in the first place.
0: Um, so to sort of put the cap on the al-Baghdadi story, he's dead, yeah. um, but ISIS is not, unfortunately. Yeah. The recent sort of trouble going on in the Middle East, a lot of ISIS prisoners have escaped from camps where they were being held by the Syrian Democratic Forces, generally referred to as the Kurds. They're not exactly the same thing, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a colloquialism. Um, and... You know, he's dead, but we'll see whether the, anything emerges from the sort of renewed chaos going on in, in Syria. Um, hopefully, they simply melt away into the into the desert and we never hear from them again. Um, yeah. But we'll have to see. Um, okay, so moving on from the good news about Baghdadi's death is the... Well, we've had a lot of arguments about that, about this. Whether Theresa May and her the destruction of her career was the necessary step for the rise of Boris Johnson and the completion of Brexit, or she was a great failure and a mistake and Boris Johnson should have been the leader all along. This is a debate. Gabriel and I have had a lot in the office. Um, We never really reached a conclusion. Yeah. We also had our colleague Herman Pretorius, who was on my side, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The wrong side. Which is that Theresa May was a failed politician. Um, Whereas Gabriel has very sweetly defended her against these charges yeah i think and, she gets i think she gets the prize a, for being one of the most noble you've cast her as a martyr a great martyr of british politics in a sense
1: yeah i mean my thought about her is that um negotiations are complicated by negotiations are very simple in that what you have is a deal that you're trying to propose for two parties to meet Uh, in the simplest version and uh, there's only three kinds of moves you can make you can make the deal better for both so that it's more attractive to each or you can make the deal you can make the best alternative to the negotiated agreement for your opponent worse off you can say look if we don't do this deal i'm going to punish you very badly and then they're more likely to join the deal or you can make your own best alternative to the negotiated agreement better so that they have to sweeten the. Uh, deal in order to lure you back into it uh, so it's just sort of it's like game theory thing this is a way of abstracting the three kinds of moves that you can make but the axes according to which people have values are multifarious uh, so there's you know I can make your Batner worse your best alternative to the negotiated agreement worse by saying if you don't do the deal we're going to punish you economically but that might politically satisfy you because if you're being punished economically that might get a whole lot of people to feel sympathy for you and that's going to keep you in office or keep you in popularity or whatever the case may be. So uh that kind of play makes things complicated. One of the things that Theresa May did right from the beginning was first negotiate how much they were going to settle, how much they were going to pay basically the yeah, divorce yeah. bill to pay to leave the EU and then only afterwards negotiate other terms thereof. And this frustrated a lot of people who said, "Look, you've given up a key negotiating stick the BATNA how much we pay to leave the EU this is part of the sort of well if you don't how much do you not pay or this is part of the deal you make it harder for further negotiations to go forward seriously I think what they underestimated is that by um, giving up some of the tools for negotiation on the economic front uh, she gained some tools on the political side and Europe is a very Fractious, very complicated, beast. unwieldy beast, and it could either have become so divided around this issue that an aggressive Tory line could have driven, possibly, people like Marine Le Pen into power in a country like France, and uh, and and mean it could have made the difference. You know, the Austrians nearly had. Uh, very far-right kind of history of fascism kind of party come to power, and instead they didn't. There are a lot of margins where if things had been more aggressive in Europe, you would have had a political, different political environment to what we see now. And I think part of the reason that the temperature was kept relatively cool was that the Brits came to the negotiating table with a very open heart, with a very open hand, very good faith, in very real ways. Look, we're going to sign on to... Uh, you know, paying okay, paying the divorce bill first and then figuring out what we're going to do later. I think that strategy played well in terms of the effect that it had on European elections. I think that strategy played well in terms of the effect that it had domestically where it allowed the, the Remainers to huff and puff and, and blow the house down to the point where they just lost their own credibility because they were blowing against the nicest version of Brexit, and still showed themselves to be sort of incultured, completely from nasty, against nasty, yes. unreasonable. And so, by the time they had exhausted themselves, Theresa May could step down and make room in a friendlier Europe and a more resolved Britain for a charismatic leader.
0: Also, a more with fa- also more fatigued Europe. Yes, a
1: fatigued, <laughs> yeah, a fatigued and more friendly Europe. If we, uh, Theresa May then made room for a charismatic leader, who I think does have the gumption. To say, look, if you don't want to do this the nice way, I'm prepared to go the harsh way. And I think in that context, it looks like it'll be easier for, for Boris to win a real majority and then go to Europe and say, really, we do now have the cards on the table. Let's just do the nice thing. Do this the nice way because uh, that that's really in our best interests, mm. and I think that'll happen. And then I think that uh, that should be good for the UK's economy. It should be good for the European economy. And I think it's such a divisive issue. If it does get settled in this way, I think people will look back and say how impressive it is that the Brits they hana 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 yana 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 in the Parliament, and it seemed kind of. Uh, like a terrible soap opera, but it was like a soap opera where no one got killed. The system worked in the end. The system worked yeah. in the end. I think that I think people are going to be very impressed at how cool, calm, and collected they were. And Theresa May really was the most cool, calm, and collected of the lot. And I should just add that if I am biased in her favor, <laughs> it's because she dances in the most charming way to the most charming music. She reminds me of David Bowie.
0: Indeed she does. Who is
1: one of the greatest pop stars in the history of the world. And she represents my trajectory in Brexit, where I first thought that if I could have voted on the day, I would have voted to remain in the EU, mostly for geopolitical reasons. I think that the UK is generally a more responsible state and a more powerful state than a lot of Europe. And I think when it's close to Europe, it's it's historically been good for peace. Um, And so that's why I would have voted that way. But once the referendum had gone the other way...
0: Something more important was at stake. Something
1: more important was at stake, and that was the legitimacy of the British government. Mm. And so I became a lever in a sense. And that's exactly what Theresa May was. She voted to remain, but as soon as the British people had their voices heard with the biggest turnout in any British election in the history of the country, she was like, okay, now we have to implement the will of the British people to the best of our abilities. And I don't, it's not a sexy position. To say,
0: yeah, oh, indeed, <laughs> you, you
1: know, this is—I'm not doing this out of a conviction
0: of like what I think is politically or economically. Based. Yeah, I'm not passionately just passionately like, rallying the masses behind explain. I
1: think I think this is a very important thing to do because I believe in this country, yeah, uh, and its institutions and its system. Well, anyway, my
0: my my read of her is, of course, a little bit different, which is that she uh, was sort of void by her. A quite big victory in the sort of Tory conference and this uh, this belief that Jeremy Corbyn, who was the Labour opponent, could never win an election. So she believed that she had sort of a free hand. She ran her office dictatorially, at least in the beginning. Um, she couldn't. She tried to keep all the Tory factions happy and didn't choose leave or remain, which, as it turns out, seems to have been the choice that all the parties have been forced to make on some level. Mm. Um, she. She didn't I'm not I am i do not know how well she negotiated, but I know that at least in managing the 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 domestic affairs in Britain I don't think she was particularly successful. And most especially I think the greatest point of failure was the poor election result against Jeremy Corbyn, which put her in a position where her parliamentary majority was weak. It mm. was an election she had called early, specifically so that she could try and get a proper mandate yeah. behind behind herself in Brexit. Um she campaigned badly mostly on domestic issues, to so Brexit wasn't as... No, she didn't commencing. dance nearly enough. <laughs> she didn't dance nearly enough. And as a result, she got stuck with a parliament with this tiny minority. Yeah, this hung parliament. This hung parliament. And she suffered her whole career because of that. And she, in the end, just couldn't bridge the divide between all the factions. She couldn't commit the party to one way or the other. She couldn't fight Jeremy Corbyn particularly well, even though he's one of the most unpopular opposition leaders in British history. And this caused her to eventually be forced to resign, um, despite the fact that Boris Johnson is hated by many people inside the Tory Party's upper ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he managed to ride her unpopularity to victory, mm-hmm. and I think he's done very well since he since he came in. Um, although we'll have to see, really. I mean, it's like that that uh, the quote that um, the apocryphal quote that yes, uh, very good from my favorite movie from, that Trump always uses about. Uh, does he Chinese, use it about the Chinese? Yeah, that uh, they asked that the Chinese leaders were no, asked. No man, Trump doesn't use it. This comes no, from. No, not a movie. Trump. I said uh, sorry. Why did I say Trump? France. Yes, France, yes, France uses France. it. That, uh, that allegedly, the Chinese uh, communist officials were asked what their opinion on the French Revolution was, and they said something along the lines of. Uh, it's too soon to it's tell. It's too soon to tell, and I think that's going to be a little bit of the case with Brexit. Is we yeah. we really don't know how the story's going to end. Yeah. Um, if it, if they get Brexit and the tall Corbyn government, it might be a moment of profound devastation. For oh British my God! Politics. Yeah. Also, if you get Brexit and the
1: Irish peel off and the Scots peel off, yeah, will be a nightmare. Too. That'll be a nightmare. It's this is yeah, this is a story that is going to be visible from a hundred years time and still relevant to history. I think in the year two thousand one hundred. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, something got wrecked, and it was
0: Theresa May and Theresa May's deal. <laughs> Theresa May's deal. So let's walk on let's walk on to um a little bit of kind of pop culture technology news, which is uh the world's biggest YouTuber, a guy known as PewDiePie. I think his actual name is Felix
1: Oh no one cares. His name is PewDiePie.
0: or something like that. <laughs> <Swedish>. <laughs> he was the biggest YouTuber for years and years. Just an yeah. uh, individual guy, I think he's got two editors. And that's his entire sort of production company. Yeah, uh, he had something like eighty million subscribers. He plays video games online yeah, and talks nonsense. And talks nonsense. And now, now all he does is review memes. Yeah, that's it's like thing. hanging
1: out with the sort of weird friend from high school.
0: Yeah, he was in a lot of ways. He was, I think, uh, his appeal was that to a lot of younger kids who are maybe a bit socially isolated, he was kind of like a friend. Yeah. Uh, but very close friend uh, who, who you could hang out with on, on online. Yeah. Anyway, and who doesn't
1: get too heavy into issues?
0: Or yeah. yeah. Uh, he also has done sort of interesting things. He's uh, he's been mm-hmm. under criticism several times because he wants... It's very complicated to explain the context, but basically he he said something that that was anti-Semitic out of context. He told a
1: joke and then he got backlash. And, and then instead of apologizing, he held his line and was like, dude, I'm funny.
0: Yeah, he also said something racist once, um, which he did apologize for because he, he said that it was just... He was being no, young and no, stupid. No excuse. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's, he's a little bit of a controversial figure, but I think he's genuinely a pretty positive influence. He has it several times encouraged his viewers to, to read interesting books. He has sometimes has a book club kind of uh, section to his show. Um, he's like Oprah for the youth. He's a little bit like Oprah for the youth, yeah uh in a very weird way <laughs> um but he had a Swedish contest <laughs> he had a contest with a big indian um youtube channel that's called, uh, that's, that's t- dots, dots not feathers <laughs> called t series and this uh channel it's like an aggregator i think of it collects all the youtube pop stars um music videos and it puts them all on one youtube channel and it has been growing massively because of course india is a big market that's starting to come online in a very serious way yeah and uh it's kind of it's it's sort of a sign of the times the way that india is sort of rising in the world yeah uh and they had this contest it became a bit of a a meme to to get people to follow pewdiepie so that he would stay ahead of t-series and be the first to 100 million subscribers which is a huge number of subscribers that is people who get a notification every time you release a video yeah and this went on and on and on and eventually T-Series passed him somewhere around 95 million subscribers somewhere around there. Yeah. <laughs> which is <laughs> quite spectacular. Um, yeah, so India now has the biggest YouTube channel. Yes, India now has the biggest YouTube channel. He, as, an, as a basically an individual, although him and his two editors, as a sort of small-time YouTuber, he still has the biggest channel by miles. Yeah. But uh, there's now a big Indian company which has the biggest YouTube channel on YouTube. Um. And his
1: video, Nick just showed me the video that he made, sort of in a last, gasp attempt to hold on to his lead. (laughs) Uh, And I don't like swearing, uh, but it's called "bitch lasagna." Yes, and uh, it's pretty hilarious. It's
0: it's very weird um yeah it's it's, it so
1: speaks to the kind of stream of consciousness loose association it's like so much of 21st century youth culture is like looking at it's like a rorschach test look at this piece of paper kind of what's the first thing that comes to your mind how do these weird ideas rhyme with each other uh, it doesn't no production value things like it looks you i feel like the look feel is as much 17 year olds hanging out in a garage in a, in a lower middle class, middle class kind of environment and just goofing around as possible. That's yeah. sort of, and that's what MTV's music videos were about in the 90s and the 2000s. And that's sort of come
0: online in a YouTube way that I think he taps into charmingly. Yes. Um, so he, he what uh, the most interesting thing about him is that they asked Generation Z, so that's people born after the year 2000, um, what, who, uh, they, 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 in the, I think this was in America, they asked yeah. them, several different personalities, what they're, what, whether you approved of them or not, and whether you knew their name. You'd think that a big basketball player like LeBron James, very well known, had about 99%, I think, uh, re- name recognition, but only about 52% approval rating. PewDiePie had the same level, 99% name recognition, uh, name recognition, and 62% approval rating, which was the highest of anyone in that group. Yeah. And I think that shows the big cultural change that's gonna come is that these people like YouTube stars yeah. are gonna become very culturally relevant as generation yeah. as millennials get yeah. older and as generation Z gets older. And as they get older. So watch out for PewDiePie as a kind of Oprah. Yeah. No, he might be he might be pretty big. All right, we're starting to run out of time here, so we'll just breeze past this one quite quickly. I think it's connected to the to the Posa thing. Uh Sassel and the J C. Oh, God, wrecked. wrecked. wrecked, Destroyed, huge capital outflows, Yeah, terrible year full. For the and then they market. came
1: back and then they had an AGM yesterday or the day before yesterday. And instead of like talking about the real stuff, the only thing that I heard like on the radio about it afterwards was talking about uh, how dare you sort of be making coal and gas and
0: chemicals and oils and all that kind of stuff in the first <laughs> place
1: because oh, Greater Thunberg.
0: Yes. And uh, SAA is also wrecked. And of course, our friend, ESCOM, wrecked. Wrecked. Um, so then... Uh, the big one that I've left till second last uh, the DA DA wrecked wrecked this election terrible election result we've talked about a lot in the Daily Friend we yeah. talked about a little bit on um, the Two Crickets and the Thorn Tree but I put a question mark here because yeah Phoenix and the Ashes or just Ashes to Ashes yeah we don't know yet We, it, it remains to be seen the jury is still out as the Chinese wise men say yes cool it is scene. too soon to tell yes yeah. yeah. Um, and the last one, which is one you specifically requested, is Jordan Peterson and uh, Slavoj Žižek mm. had a debate. Earlier. Oh, man, they had this debate, and it was like one of the most built-up academic it intellectual was, debates. It was supposed to be, what, communism versus free markets or something.
1: Something like that. Some, It's, it's, it's hard to say. So Jordan Peterson, you know, doesn't like communism. <laughs> doesn't like communism. Slavoj Žižek is sometimes called a communist. He often calls himself a communist. One of his running jokes is that he speaks a little bit like this from Slovenia. He says, are you, uh, when the revolution comes, you you are good. Uh, You will go to jail because you are a capitalist. But on Sundays when everyone gets soup, you will get two bowls of soup. (laughs) That's what he says when a capitalist makes a really good point. That's like the highest compliment he can pay. But when they had the debate, so much of it was really lucid, I thought. And the, one of the points that quickly emerged is that they struggle to disagree with each other because the left-right divide is so orthogonal to, I think, what pulls a lot of people. I mean, including them. Jordan Peterson is so happy to have, like, a, a national healthcare system, for example. Yeah, And Slavo- And Slavoj Zizek is so happy to have, like, a very limited government, the, the the left-right divide as an economic divide about whether you want a slightly bigger government or a slightly smaller government. is really irrelevant on an international scale because the size of governments on the international scale varies from Ireland, which is 12% income tax, to Sweden, which is sort of 70% income tax. Um, and both countries run each other themselves quite well. Yeah. And there are other countries that have similarly big or small governments that really run each other badly. So that, mm. that, that left-right divide is really not clever. And Slavoj Žižek, because he came, grew up under a communist regime, knows how stupid it is and really doesn't want communism. His his idea of communism is to go into leftist rallying points and say, sometimes the most radical thing to do is nothing at all. (laughs) And it's quite sexy. It's quite a sexy idea that just doing nothing is actually the most radical thing you can do. And it sort of deflates a lot of the He's like, maybe we should th- sit and talk about it. <laughs> this is really a great idea. Like if I could, if I could do that every now and then, if, if he could have uh, been in South African university campuses in the 2015 list moments, I think with his, you know, it'll really be radical, not protesting. Uh, then that might've, that might've, uh, changed I'm the country direction a little bit. Anyway, I, the point is a, their debate, they be. both wrecked each other because they, because they struggled so far hard to find points that they disagree on. Uh,
0: I think they probably would have stoned him to death on the four-list campus. Oh, right. They weren't exactly in an open-minded mood. No. (laughs) But anyway, um, so (laughs) I think that concludes our episode. We've actually managed to keep it to an hour and three minutes according to my clock here. So thank you everyone for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this little kind of sort of roundup of the year of things that have been destroyed. Yeah. Um, If you like the work the IRR does.
1: After the ad, bad, in with the good. Yeah, yeah. SMS 3 to 83. That that'll bring more goodness to you and the world.
0: Your 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 power salaries, which will allow us to continue to produce long hour long podcasts like this. Um, Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree.